Well, a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to China for Insight for Living. Several of us went over there and looked at the possibility of, uh, of doing some ministry there. While we were there, just a vast, beautiful country, this China. Uh, we got to ride the bullet train, uh, which was amazing. It's like 200-plus mile-an-hour train, uh, which, is, which was wonderful to, to ride. Uh, it was really neat. Um, also, it was nice, you know, for about a week and a half to be the tallest person in the country. <laughs> that was a first for me, so I really, I kind of like that. Um, went to the Forbidden City, which was kind of neat as well. But uh, the thing that most fascinated me was going to the Great Wall of China. Not the restaurant, but the actual Great Wall <laughs> of China. And 1,500 miles long. 1,500 miles long. That is a long wall. And you've seen pictures of the Great Wall of China. It's not until you're standing on it and thinking, this thing is 1,500 miles long that you realize what an incredible feat it was. And the whole goal of the Great Wall was basically to protect the country from the invading armies that would come from the West. And uh, the irony, the sad irony of it, is that on a number of occasions, China was invaded in spite of the wall. The invading army didn't go around it or over it or under it. Sounds like that, uh, that Father Abraham song or whatever it was. Bos bosom of Abraham, yeah. Um, they went through it. They went right through the gate by bribing the gatekeeper. That's all it takes is bribing the gatekeeper. And, you know, after I heard that historical truth... Of course, I thought, you know, that relates to our spiritual lives. We can erect a wall. In fact, God can provide a wall. Let's just say it that way. God can provide an impenetrable wall around us. But if our gatekeeper isn't on the job, if our gatekeeper isn't faithful, then we can let any old enemy in the gate. And the traitor in the gate is one, honestly that we carry with us every step of the day. And if we're not careful, that traitor, that Judas, will allow uh, the enemy in, and it's just a matter of time until we're conquered. Great metaphor, and it's very sobering truth. Let's look at it in black and white here in Mark chapter 14. We're going to keep going right where we were from last week. If you notice in your notes, it just says part two at the top because we only got about halfway through what I had hoped that we'd get through. And today, I hope that we'll get through the second half because the text is so rich, not only with the great history that we know of our Lord's passion here in Gethsemane, but of rich in application for us as we think about our lives and the great vulnerability we have to the enemy apart from our dependence on the Lord. Well, Mark chapter 14, we made it all the way down through um, verse 25. So if you look, let's see, about verse 25. I'm on the wrong page here. And then just kind of scan back up. You'll remember what we looked at last week. Jesus sent a couple of disciples, we know those to be Peter and John, ahead to find, make preparations in the upper room, preparations for the Passover meal, and Jesus and his apostles appeared that evening 
and celebrated Passover, Jesus dropped the bomb, as it were, by saying, one of you will betray me. And I've been thinking about that through this week. Why didn't Jesus just say, by the way, guys, I want you to know, Judas over here is going to betray. He doesn't say that. He says, one of you will betray me. He just kind of lays it out there and allows that truth to sort of hover and to let each disciple think, is it me? And that's such a healthy thing for us to think about as well. Whenever, whenever someone um, gives the principle of, you know what, there is, there is potential failure in this room here today, we should all immediately think, it could be me. It could be me. The only problem is the disciples didn't say that. They said, surely not I. It's like, there's no way it's me, right, Lord? And this sort of self-confidence sort of sets the stage for what we're going to be looking at here in the text as we start to read. Jesus goes on. Not only does he talk about the, uh, uh, the one who will betray, surely not I, but then he goes on and initiates the Lord's Supper, institutes the Lord's Supper, which we talked about last week. And then after that, he, they leave, verse 26, and they head out to the Mount of Olives. So let's pick up right there and just continue as this, uh, as this great story continues. Verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to, said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Jesus had specifically predicted Judas, uh, Judas's betrayal. One of you will betray me. And then he opens it wide up and says, oh, and by the way, you're all going to fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, a prophecy of God striking a shepherd and, a sheep being, and the sheep being scattered. Jesus applies that to himself. And the striking of the shepherd is a reference to Jesus' whole ordeal that he's about to go through. This ordeal of his arrest, of his, of his betrayal, of his arrest, of, his, of the trials, ultimately of the crucifixion and the burial. This striking of the shepherd causes the sheep to abandon him, in spite of the fact that they all say it isn't going to happen. Of course, Peter pushes himself to the front of the line once again and says, you know, Lord, um, you're probably right about these other guys. They all may fall away, but I will not. And it's almost humorous the way Mark writes it in the Greek text, the emphasis in verse 29 uh, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. The emphasis on the I is very strong. And the yet is actually the word but. It's very strong. It's a very strong contrast. So Peter is making it clear to Jesus and to the rest of the apostles there in the upper room. These other guys, they may fall away. 
fact, they probably will. But I won't. I never will fall away. Interestingly, they all say the same thing. So because Jesus, uh, because Peter sort of puts himself out front, Jesus gets real specific with Peter. Let me tell you, Peter, how it's going to happen for you then. So you'll know it when it happens. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Let's get real specific. This is how you're going to know that it's going to happen and when it happens. You're going to deny me. Interestingly, how did Peter respond to that? He denied it. I'll never do that. What they failed to notice was in addition to predicting that they would all fall away, Jesus also predicted their reunion. I will go ahead of you into Galilee after, after I'm raised. Hello? They, they, they didn't even hear that. No one ever addresses that. Jesus is the only one that talks about that. In fact, if you look back through the chapters 8 through 10 where we talked about Jesus revealing the cross several times, in those times he would also say, by the way, I will see you in Galilee after I'm raised. He says it a number of times. And here he says it very specifically. But they completely ignore it. They go right to the fact that, what do you mean I'm going to deny you? I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. Isn't it wonderful he also predicts the reunion? I love the other, Mark doesn't mention it, but I'll mention it just because I love the, one of the other Gospels. It gets so specific here. In Jesus' great words to Peter, he says, but I've prayed for you. That when you, are, when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that a great affirmation? Not only is there a prediction of the failure, there's a prediction of the repentance. And the same principle is true in our lives. The failure that you go through, the failures that you've experienced in your life, are, is not just blood on the ground. The Lord has allowed you to go through that and to hurt and to go through the pain of it and to learn from it so that when you, now that you've turned, you can strengthen your brothers, you can strengthen your sisters, that the struggle that you've gone through has not been for nothing. It's been to encourage other people who are going through that same thing. I've lost a job twice. And if you ever lost a job, that is a painful way to make a transition in your career. And, but what it has done for me, it has made me very, it's done a lot, actually, <laughs> but it has made me very sensitive to people who have lost jobs. And it has given me a very compassionate empathy and understanding of other men, particularly, who, who uh, have lost jobs. So when you go through something, it's not for naught. Uh, be courageous enough to let the Lord use you. Be humble enough to say, you know what? That happened to me too. And here's what the Lord taught me through that. You will encourage others. You will encourage others. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. They came to Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a Hebrew word that means oil press. 
oil press. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to a place that not a lot of people go. It's right by the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a busy street right there. If you're ever at the Garden of Gethsemane, you just kind of turn to the right, go down some stairs, and there's this big underground church where they say Mary was buried. Probably wasn't. But then you turn to the right and go down this long hallway, and it says Gethsemane at the top, and it's this little cave. It's this little grotto in which a first-century oil press was found. So Gethsemane likely was in this cave. This oil press was probably in this cave. And if so, very well could have been, this is the place where Jesus told his disciples, sit here. And we know that he left eight of them there, and then he took Peter, James, and John a little farther on, and he told them, remain here. And then we're told Jesus went a little beyond them, and he himself prayed. These three locations, you can still get the proximity of these three locations when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane today. Um, Gethsemane is the oil press. The Garden of Gethsemane means the garden that is by the oil press that, that was in that vicinity. Keep your finger here. Maybe you don't have to turn a page, but just look back at the end of chapter 13, right before chapter 14, and look at something that we talked about when we were in chapter 13. The very end of chapter 13, verse 35, look what Jesus said in this parable that is unique to Mark. Only Mark includes it. Verse 35 says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So twice he tells them, verse 35, verse 37, be on the alert. That word in the original language is actually just one Greek word that means to be on the alert, to be watchful, and it's the identical word, even the identical form that's used in verse 34 of chapter 14, where Jesus says, remain here and keep watch. Those words, keep watch and be on the alert, are actually in the original language, the identical word. I don't know why they didn't translate it identically, but it is the identical word. And the point there is Mark is saying, by the way, as Jesus says this, think back to the end of chapter 13 when Jesus said that because there is a connection. Jesus tells them in that parable at the end of 13, be on the alert because you don't know when the master is coming. You don't know when you will need to be alert. So just stay alert. And he gives examples. Evening, midnight, rooster, or morning. Does that sort of sound familiar? I mean, the rooster ought to crow on your mind right away because of what Jesus has said. But if you think about it, each of these watches of the night are what Jesus will have experienced here in, in the Passion or in this, uh, this experience that we're talking through now. We've already talked about the evening. In the evening, uh, we were told they came to the upper room. That was verse 17 of chapter 14, when it was evening. And then at midnight, now the word midnight is not actually used in the text, but with uh, some thinking through it, if Jesus prayed for an hour three times, the end of the, the evening watch was 9 p.m., so we could 
with some conjecture, say that Jesus was arrested about midnight. And then, of course, the next thing to happen is the, uh, the rooster crowing, and we'll see that next week. And then in the morning is, begins chapter 15. Notice chapter 15 begins with those very words, early in the morning. So Mark is drawing a sense of, of stay on the alert, whether it's evening, whether it's midnight, whether it's the rooster, whether it's the morning. And what do you know, each of these is going to happen as the story unfolds. And, and Jesus actually repeats the command, stay here and stay alert. Keep watch. Be aware. Keep on the alert. Then, verse 35, we're told he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you might not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice it says that Jesus came the verb came and found them sleeping. Again, that should sound familiar to the end of chapter 13. Be on the alert in case he should come and find you asleep. This is a similar connection. So Mark's drawing a very clear connection there. He came and found them asleep, and he used the word, once again, keep watch. It's that word that he's used a number of times now. And then he adds... Keep watching and praying, and praying. Part of remaining faithful is remaining aware of your need. The need is clear. In fact, Jesus says it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You've got the want to, but you don't have the can do. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's not a person in this room that, if we were to be honest, would not say, you know what, I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. That is my pure, genuine desire. Every one of us would say that. And the reality is, we're probably going to blow up before lunch today. <laughs> Definitely as you talk about where you're going to have lunch. It's such a challenge, isn't it? The want to is there, but the can do is not. And Jesus says, you need to be aware of your weakness. You need to be aware of the traitor in the gate. Because if you're not aware that you have that weakness, that vulnerability, temptation will have its way with you. Temptation is too great for us apart from dependence on God. Let me say that again. Temptation is too great for us apart from dependence on God. In fact, let's say that out loud together. Temptation is too great for us apart from dependence on God. It is. In fact, we could even make it personal and say it's too great for me. If we don't rely on God, we have a greater confidence in ourselves than God does. The Lord tells us, you need to be very aware of your weakness. 
because otherwise temptation is too great for you and you will fall. Or as Jesus says, you will fall into temptation. Awareness of it and prayer. And Jesus models both. And in his prayer, he prays three things. Look at what he prays. First of all, he prays that the hour might pass him by. Second, that the cup might be removed. And third, that the Father's will be done rather than Jesus' will. That the hour might pass him, the cup would be removed, and that the Father's will be done. The hour is a reference to basically this, this time, this beginning point, the hour that, of Jesus' suffering. The cup is also a reference to this, probably a specific reference to his death, uh, because he uses the phrase, the cup of my blood. We saw that last week. And he also referenced that to James and John back when they were in Jericho asking for the best seats in the house. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Sure, we can drink it. And the hour is a reference to this beginning point. In fact, down in verse 41, which we'll read here in a bit, it says the hour has come. Now, keep your finger here in Mark 14, but turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, and I want to show you a great, great verse that the author of the Hebrews made in connection to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And as you're making your way to Hebrews 5, remember back a few chapters back in Mark, Jesus had taught his disciples to pray, all things are possible. In fact, he even used the illustration, if you command this tree to be uprooted and thrown into the sea, it will obey you. All things are possible for him, who, for the one who believes. And we talked about then that Jesus wasn't saying, hey, name it and claim it. He was saying, believe it, that, that the power of God is able to do anything. But then you need to surrender if it's God's will. And that's what Jesus is praying. So in Hebrews 5, look at verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. The author says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. We get an insight here into sort of the behind the scenes of what's going on in Jesus crying out in Gethsemane. Prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him. It says from death. You could also translate it the one who would save him out of death. Out of death. Could be implication of resurrection there. And then also it says he was heard because of his piety. Jesus, our great high priest, which is the context of Hebrews 5, Christ is a better priest than Aaron, uh, is the context of it. But the point is that because of the godly life, because of the piety of Jesus Christ, he was heard. And his prayer, as we know, was answered. Okay, flip back to Mark 14. Jesus prayed to the Father and said, Father, anything, all things are possible for you. You can do anything. 
Would you please take this cup from me? But then he immediately qualifies it by saying, not my will, but yours be done. The phrase has almost become so cliche that it's really tough to hear it fresh. But do your best to hear it fresh. Here's my request, but not my will, but yours be done. Think about that in whatever it is right now that you're praying and asking God about. Because honestly, one of our greatest challenges is that we come to Gethsemane every single day in our lives, don't we? Gethsemane is not just this garden that's uh, east of Jerusalem and that with reference to Jesus' time there in uh, the spring of A.D. 33. Gethsemane is where we enter. We enter Gethsemane every single day. And we have to drag our will kicking and screaming to the Father because we want it our way. We don't want to qualify the prayer, Lord, please take this cup. We just want him to take the cup. We want him to take it away. But Christ says, Lord, I know you can take it away. Father, you can take it away. Don't take it away if it's not your will. Mark alone records that Jesus refers to the Father as Abba. 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 If you go to Jerusalem today in the Jewish quarter and just kind of sit there in this beautiful little square by the Herva Synagogue, you can see families all walking around, strollers, loud children, and the, the children are constantly yelling, Abba, 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 is calling to their daddy. And that's what Abba means. It's not the formal father. It means daddy. It's a very intimate term. And it's the only time Jesus refers to the father in this way. And it sort of implies, perhaps, Jesus' request. It's not enough. I, I, I don't know that Jesus would necessarily say, he was necessarily simply requesting that he be spared from the pain of death. Jesus knew he was born to die. But part of what Jesus is referring to here is the Abba relationship, this intimate relationship with the Father. Think about it. The Trinity has had unbroken fellowship from all eternity past. Eternity past. That's a long time. In fact, it's mind-boggling when you think about that God has had no beginning. We can't wrap our minds around that. But from eternity past, the Father and the Son have been one, as well as the Spirit. And yet, what is the punishment of sin but death? What is death? Death is not the separation simply of the soul from the body. That's physical death. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And it is the most terrible type of death that there is spiritual death. Jesus had to enter into spiritual death on the cross in order to to be the payment for our sins. And Jesus knew this. And so Jesus is asking here, uh, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup. You know, the Bible doesn't say at any specific place, so this is sort of conjecture, but I think probably part of what Jesus is praying here is, is it possible that we can do this without our fellowship being broken? Uh, And we know from the crosses, when Christ cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me, that the Father's answer was no. It has to happen like this. There has to be a complete separation as payment for sin. 
Interesting, Abba Father is mentioned here, and it's only mentioned two other times in the New Testament, both concerning you and me. In Galatians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 8, we're told that we can come to the Father and cry Abba, that we have that same intimate relationship with the Father that Jesus was able to have in Gethsemane because we have the Holy Spirit that has uh, allowed us to be adopted into God's family. So God is our Father by adoption, and we are able to call to him Abba, Daddy. We have an intimate relationship with the Father because of the Spirit of God. Interesting also, in Romans chapter 8, that whole context of the Holy Spirit, we're told that even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. With groanings too deep for words, in fact. And you think about Jesus here in Gethsemane, and that lines up, doesn't it? Because Jesus here is praying, and yet he is praying according to the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. We have that same access to the Father. Abba, Father. Intimate relationship with the Father. And when you come to him by prayer and you don't even know what to pray, some situations are like that in life, aren't they? God, I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know what to ask you. I'm just here praying for whatever I need to be praying for, and I don't even know what it is. But the Spirit of God knows what it is, and he intercedes according to the will of God in your life and in mine. I said we enter Gethsemane every single day, and we surrender our will to the Lord. When someone for whom we've prayed for years dies, as far as we can tell, unrepentant, how, is our, how do we respond? Not my will, but yours be done. When living as a godly parent or single or spouse or child proves enormously harder than you ever imagined it would be, not my will, but yours be done. When a tragic accident happens, when a child is born with physical or mental defect, when there is a a sudden transition in your life that you couldn't anticipate, you name it. The list only ends when life ends. We pray, not my will, but yours be done. Life is going to hand you and me what seems like a raw deal. It will. Think about the ultimate raw deal. Jesus got it. He came to those, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Instead, they crucified him. Solutions are going to seem as gnarled as the trees, as the olive trees in Gethsemane. And when God's will for us seems cruel, there is no greater battle than the surrender of your will. That's your greatest battle. It's my greatest battle, is the surrender of our will to the Father. And at the moment where it seems like God's goodness is a bucket of hogwash, we stand only inches away from using our anger to justify our sin. That's the traitor in the gate that you've got to watch out for. At that moment of temptation where you're wondering, you know what? Seems like the Lord missed it this time. This shortcut might be the better way to go. Don't take it. Trust the Lord, just like Jesus did. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's keep reading now, verse 39. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, 
for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus, uh, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. Look back at verse 31. Where's the word all appeared again? They were all saying the same thing also. I will never deny you. I will never fall away. Mark says they all left him and fled. Jesus was right. John chapter 18 tells us that Judas knew of this place because Jesus came here often. Judas knew right where to take him. Oh, they must have left the upper room. I know right where they went. Let's go to Gethsemane. And he led them there, and what do you know? That's where Jesus was. I say that to say Jesus wasn't hiding. Jesus wasn't escaping. The road over the Mount of Olives that led to the wilderness um, was right there beside Gethsemane. Jesus could have taken it. In fact, it's the same road that King David escaped, sort of a connection, where David, uh, the, the rejected king, escaped over the Mount of Olives. We're told that he walked up the Mount of Olives barefoot. It was right by Gethsemane that David would have walked up as well and escaped over and across the Jordan River, etc. Jesus was right there, the son of David, the rejected king. And yet instead of fleeing, as David did, Jesus sat, stayed right there and prayed, submitting to the will of the Father. Mark doesn't tell us who the sword-swinging disciple was, but John does. Good old John. It was Peter. Peter, shing, in a waking up out of the, a sleepy stupor, starts swinging his sword and misses the head of the high priest's servant and just takes his ear off. He wasn't aiming for the ear. He was <laughs> aiming dead center of this guy's head. He wasn't thinking, you know what, I'm going to just take his ear off. No. Peter was trying to resist the arrest. Why was Peter resisting the arrest? Because Peter hadn't prayed. Peter was sleeping. He wasn't keeping watch and praying. Jesus wasn't resisting the arrest. Why? Because Jesus had prayed, take the cup, but not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus said, arise, here comes my uh, betrayer, notice Jesus didn't say, look, here comes my betrayer, let's all get out of here. He stays because he, he resigns himself to the will of God. Peter didn't. 
Peter started swinging his sword. Peter started swinging his sword. It was the only decision Peter saw. It was the only solution was to resist. And I don't want to make this walk on all fours, but we can quickly apply this to our lives as well. Because we've got swords too, don't we? And we pull them out. When we're in a situation where it looks like there is no escape, the world's solution seems to be the best. And we'll pull out the sword and start swinging. I am not going to be arrested. And so we'll do whatever we can to get out. That, that sword works a lot of different ways. But, we, but Peter, it's important to, to note that Peter made that decision because he had not been in prayer. He was asleep. When you get in a situation and you don't know what to do, pray about it. Go to the Lord and pray about it. And you'll get clarity, even if it's, uh, I don't know how the Lord brings it about. He's so able to do it, but it's so challenging. Jesus was aware, and he stayed, and he allowed himself to be arrested. He surrendered to the Father, not to the Romans. That's an important thing to, to, um, to remember. Jesus surrendered to the Father. Interesting, he points out the hypocrisy of those who arrest him. Uh, when it became clear that Jesus would allow himself to be arrested, his disciples are like, uh, he's not going to resist. He's going to be arrested. That doesn't look good. I'm out of here. And they all left him. They all fled. Interesting, once again, just to look at the language, the original language. In the Greek, the word all is emphatic in that, in that sentence. They all left, including good old Peter. The one who said they all may fall away, but I will not. Peter is part of this, part of the ones who fled. Interesting, uh, verse 51 is kind of an interesting sidebar. You kind of wonder why Mark included it. But look at verse 51. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Don't you know the Romans just laughed? Kind of makes you want to laugh too, doesn't it? To see this poor guy running away naked. There's a glare. Okay, good. Perfect glare right on the thing. I wasn't sure exactly what time it was. It was not a good glare, but now it's a better glare that I can see it. Now, this is a bit of a sidebar, but let, let's examine this for a second. Um, let's just do a little bit of logical, biblical interpretation. Who is this young man? Well, we're not told. Mark doesn't tell us this was me. He doesn't say this was me, but it very well could have been Mark. How do we know that? Because if you, if you were to take the time to turn to Acts 12.12, you don't have to, but you can if you want, but Acts 12.12 is where the disciples met. After, remember after Peter was, le, uh, was released from being imprisoned and Peter came and knocked at the gate and Rhoda came to the door. And, oh, it's Peter. That was John Mark's house. We're told that it was, they, they were meeting at John Mark's mother's house. So John Mark lived there. So if that is the house that the apostles met at, and the house is also referred to in the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts as the upper room, then John Mark's house very easily could have been the upper room. So that's great. So how does that make this John Mark here? Well, again, it's, it's somewhat conjecture. In fact, it's totally conjecture, but it's possible that this is only included in Mark's gospel, 
when he mentions this young man. And um, the, the idea possibly is, I've read several commentaries, several scholars who say that this is, so it's not novel or unique to me at all. But it makes sense that here, Mark at his house, Jesus and his apostles have left. Mark decides to turn in for the night. Judas shows up, and Mark doesn't take time to get fully dressed. He just heads out with what he has on to go to Gethsemane to warn Jesus, and his, his uh, garment is grabbed. A total conjecture. Maybe it's not John Mark, but all those things are a pretty interesting connection, aren't they? And um, Mark includes it, but he doesn't mention who it is. Doesn't mention who pulled the sword out either, but we knew who that was. Um, it's Peter. So, how can we apply this? Well, we've talked about some application already, but let me give you a, a nice contrast by way of application. And this is very solidly revealed in Scripture. Think about two gardens. Think about the two gardens. We've seen one of them already, Gethsemane, but there's another garden. There's another, um, there's another situation where all of humanity was affected by a decision in the Garden of Eden. You got the first Adam and you got the last Adam, both making decisions in a garden that will affect all of humanity. We won't turn there, but if you were to look in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it, it contrasts the decision between Adam and the decision between Jesus. And both of these decisions are made in two separate gardens, both one, one of disobedience that affected all of humanity and then one of obedience that Paul writes in Romans 5 that as a result uh, all are potentially justified. I love that comparison because the application for our lives is pretty sobering. And it's really a very simple principle that every day we walk into the garden we walk into the garden of decision. And we can decide to be like Adam or to be like Christ. In Adam's situation, he was a flawless human being who was given simply God's word and a situation of temptation. He didn't watch himself, as it were, to, with the traitor in the gate and he compromised. He somehow believed that the situation was an exception to the will of God. And when God said, don't eat from this one particular tree, of course, we're speaking of Adam and Eve here collectively, Adam as the, the representative of the human race, um, they fell, and they made the decision to sin. Jesus, on the other hand, being the last Adam, again, a perfect human, in a garden, faced a decision, as it were, and he knelt before the Father and said, I don't want to do this. I'm asking that this somehow could happen apart from how I know it's got to happen. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. Think about the implications of these decisions. Adam never would have eaten the fruit if he had known the outcome. It affected generations. Think about your own life for just a second. We don't even have to look at Adam. Think about the times in your life, and I can think about the times in my life, where decisions of compromise, decisions of sin, we made at the time thinking, eh, it's no big deal. And it turned out to be life-changing, life-altering, mistakes, regrets, that 
that if we could go back, we would do anything to go back and to not do what we did. Because it affected not only us, but it affected potentially generations, maybe our children, maybe our grandchildren. But again, let's, take, let's make a beeline back to Jesus' comment about Peter when he said, I've prayed for you, and when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. The Spirit of God doesn't want you to look back at the time that you failed and to just sulk in regret. But he wants you to look back, to think back through that time, and to see God's grace in your own life, in spite of the decision that you made, and now to strengthen others. That's one application. But another application is to simply, when you come to that point of decision in the garden, say, you know what, I could go this way or I could go this way. Doesn't make any sense to follow God, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to think about Christ in Gethsemane, not Adam in Eden. And I'm going to follow Christ's example. Our choices make a huge difference today. You ever heard of Mordecai Ham? Some of you are shaking your head. Most of you probably haven't heard of Mordecai Ham or don't remember that you've heard of him. Mordecai Ham shared the good news of Jesus to a little boy one day, and he had no idea uh, what good would result from that. Billy Graham came to faith as a result of the ministry of Mordecai Ham. And through Billy Graham, of course, millions came to Christ. I've heard the phrase, and I love the, the metaphor of it. You, can't, you can easily count the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a seed. Only God can count the apples in a seed. That's the way it is with our decisions. You have no idea the implication of the decision you're going to make. So be obedient. Be obedient and trust the Lord that he is going to make it all worthwhile. Gethsemane is, represents decision, represents our decisions. Bow with me, would you? Father, it's only because of Christ that we can come to you and call you Abba, Daddy. It's only because of the Spirit of God within us that enables us to have an intimate relationship with you because honestly, we've all made the bad decisions. We've all been the Judases. We've all been the Peters. We've all been the Twelve who turned and fled in the moment of crisis. We've all failed and fallen short of your glory. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the garden made the decision to lay down his life, to surrender his will, to go to the cross, and to pay for our sins, that any who believe in him might have their sins forgiven. And we pray for any who are here today that have yet to make that decision to trust Christ, that they would open up their hearts and believe, and to have all their sins forgiven by faith in him. And as we make our way through the week, through, even through the day today, Lord, remind us of Jesus in Gethsemane. Give us the picture of our Savior kneeling, weeping, praying, and as Hebrews says, crying out with loud cries to the one who is able to save him, and yet at the same time crying, not my will, but yours be done. Give us that same courage, that same foresight, that sees beyond the immediate need that we're swinging our sword and trying to get out of 
And instead, give us that, that sight that Jesus had that looks beyond the immediate to the eternal. And help us to trust you when we see no way out to make the right choice and to trust you that you will bring about some vindication, some encouragement in the long run as a result. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.